So we're answering some, some of those questions, man. There's some great, great questions out there. And that's what this series is all about. And so we're excited that you guys are here, uh, whether you're a Christian or not, somebody from another faith, whatever. We're just glad that you're here in the building tonight. And uh, we just hope you're open to some questions and answers and all kinds of stuff like that. Um, I don't know if any of you guys are, are into saying, really? Like, you know, when somebody does something stupid and you go like, really? Right? Okay. I personally never said that. Um, but I, I've, I've had reason to think it a lot lately. I was driving down by Ciro's Pizza, which is the best pizza in the whole world, on Route 111. And I, I came out, and, and I, I had to take it back to the office here to work. And so I just put the pizza cut on the seat next to me, and I'm driving back. And uh, it was just beckoning my name, like, while I was driving, okay? And so I, at, at a light, very responsibly, at a light, I opened it up, and I just picked it up, and I took a bite. And the guy in the car next to me, right around the same time, uh, he honked his horn, he kind of looked over at me and just kind of like, you know, like nodded at me. I'm like figuring he needs direction or something or like, or like this is going to be like a big God moment. Like, like that guy suddenly was like, I need to talk to that bald man, you know? And like, there's going to be this like incredible interaction, you know? But anyway, he rolls down his window and he just looks at me. He goes, that looks good. Can I have some? And I was like, really? You know, I was like, really? Okay. All right. That's great. Thanks. Um, so a really moment. Um, last night I had a nice really moment. Um, I was at Greg and Janine's, at, uh, wow, they're not married yet. So it couldn't be anniversary engagement party. That's the one. And, uh, Dave Mung, my buddy, I can't even find him, but other oh, is Dave, uh, he, this, this guy works at all these places where he's constantly catering and he's helping people and he's catering stuff. And so he's sitting at the table next to me going, this is amazing. I actually get to eat this food. I, I can sit here and enjoy it myself. And so he asked me for the cheese and there was a large bowl of cheese. And so I grabbed the cheese and I started to give it to him. And, and, and I said, you know what, David? And I was very proper and kind. I said, David, I'm going to serve you. Okay. So you say when. And so I'm holding the spoon and I put one spoonful on. It's just a little piece of pasta with a little cheese in there. So it was nothing big. And I'm doing, I'm, I'm literally up to like time 12 and he's still just looking at me like with a big grin on his face. Right. And I'm like, dude, what is going on? He's like, I'm never going to say when. All right. And so I was like, really? You know, and, and literally there was the, the, I think there was more cheese on top of the pasta than there was pasta, which I think is a horrifying waste of one of our most precious resources. Okay. So Dave, what's up? Um, another time recently, um, and this is open to some debate and argument, which there probably will be in the next minute or two, but, um, Andrew and Ryan and Joe, these guys are all, all working out and stuff, and, uh, and they're all doing their muscle magazines, and they're all their stuff, and their shakes, and this and that, and all, you know, and I'm just sitting there eating candy corn, all right, so that's pretty much how, I, that's my exercise plan, and uh, so these guys are doing their thing, and, and Joey tells me the other day that he walks into the office, okay, and Ryan is actually kissing one of his biceps, okay, see, I told you they'd be arguing, okay, kissing one of his, one of his biceps, now, Ryan has explained back, because okay, that's a big really moment right there. I mean, you walk in, you see someone, you really, okay? And so he explains that he, he actually, the way he works out, he's got a problem with his right wrist. He, he, something happened and he can't fully turn the weight the right way. And so he was saying that he was measuring uh, the bicep difference, which as I understand that lips on your own arm are the universal way to measure that. So that, that made sense to me, you know? So I, you know, but just another really moment, you know, and there might be some quite fabrication in there, but just a little bit, but, but those really moments, don't you ever feel like everyone around us, like when they find out you're a Christian or you're going to church, you're going to spend your Sunday night in a church, like, don't you kind of feel like that's the response you get? You're like, really? Like, like you actually believe that stuff? You, you actually willing to, to look into that stuff? There's no way that stuff's true, right? And maybe some of you in the room here tonight, you're like, that's me. Like, like my friend dragged me here, but that's exactly how I feel. And so I just want to talk a little bit tonight about Man, what if there's a good reason, though, that we believe this? What if 
there's actually some things that back it up. What if it's not just a bunch of fabrication? What if it's not just a big hoax, but there are real reasons that we believe this stuff? Um, I found something interesting. Uh, Time Magazine, they did a thing, 100 events that changed the world. And number one, here we go. Uh, I mean, he actually wasn't number one listed because they kind of did this whole history thing. But number one on the magazine there is a very Spock-like looking Jesus. He's kind of doing something with his fingers. I don't even know what that is. But uh, listen to what it says on page 14 here. You guys can actually read along on the screen with me. Just to prove that, man, some, some interesting people are saying some interesting things about Jesus. This just came out, by the way. It says, in its first years, Christianity was spread across the Roman world amid deadly persecution through the inspired testimony of the disciples who had known Jesus. That's what we talked about last week, right? His story is told in the four Gospels of Christianity's New Testament, which most scholars regard as true to Christ's message, if not the exact facts of his life. Okay, so, I mean, Time Magazine saying, as far as history is concerned... These were the facts of his life. Most historians agree that they're true to Christ's message and these are the facts of his life, which is just kind of funny because you get these two different messages, right? You get, you know, Discovery Channel message. You get the History Channel message and, and they're, they're trying to rip apart the Bible and they have all these theories about Jesus and this and that. And, and the reality is, is when you begin to really look into history, you find very different from what they're trying to sell. It's just, it's just, I mean, I don't know if they're purposefully lying, if they have misinformation. I don't know what the deal is. But when you just study history, you find some very, very interesting things out about uh, Jesus, about this whole idea of him being our Savior and our God. And so this is what we've been talking about. And the way I've been putting it is none of us would put our faith in one little part of a chair, right? None of us would say, that looks like a good seat. I'm going to sit down, you know, kick my feet up, take it easy, right? We would all say, um, no, maybe if the chair had a bunch of pieces that came together, maybe then I would be willing to let it support my weight. And so this is our sixth part of the series. And so we've just put in, we've been putting the chair together here. And each week we just kind of add a new piece. And uh, so we've started with all different kinds of, of parts. And basically this is, I think, what we can represent Christianity with is, is this idea that it's not just one little wheel. Like what I'm going to tell you tonight is one little part of the evidence. And if you just had that one little part, Maybe you wouldn't be so convinced that Jesus really loves you, that he loves you more than anything on this planet, and he died for you, and he's crazy for you, okay? But, man, you start to put all the different wheels together. You start to get some strength to this, and by the end of the series, you put this chair totally together. Maybe then you would look at it and say, I would be willing to put my weight in that. I'd be willing to sit down on that. I would trust that. And so that's what we're talking about here. Not that there aren't hard issues sometimes with, you know, not that there's not good questions people bring up about Christianity, but that there are answers for those Good questions. And so real quick, I'm going to do this as quick as I can. You guys can follow along on the screen. Um, we're going for it tonight. I hope you're ready. If you are like a list person, this is your night. If you're not, it's okay. Just sit back, enjoy. Hopefully something will sink in a little bit. Um, but uh, I just want to review real quick. And I'm going to do this way quicker than I have been. But the reason I'm doing it is not just to catch new people up. It's also for you guys who are here week after week to really get this ingrained. All right? So the first idea, that basically the, the first week... Uh, what we said was that the evidence points to God. Okay, we, we looked a little bit at evolution and we said, all right, does this absolutely explain how we got here? And as we've been saying, the process of evolution doesn't actually kick in, even according to, say, Darwin, until after life already exists. Okay, so that doesn't explain to me how life started. Okay, you know, if you want to believe that, it explains how it evolved and how it changed, but it doesn't show you ever a starting point. And Darwin himself would have told you that, okay? Uh, something else interesting I just found this week was Time Magazine uh, in 2005 did something 
uh, a poll, and they basically asked the question, do you believe that you evolved from an earlier species? And 54% of Americans said no. Like, like that shocked me, right? Don't, doesn't it feel like most of America is, is going, really, you believe in that God stuff? Like, like, of course, we're like all smart and we believe in evolution. But 54%, more than half of the people in our country said, we do not believe that. And as we said in the first week, we're not just talking about, you know, pastors. We're not just talking about Christians. We're talking about really smart people from, uh, you know, professors, microbiologists from places like Yale and Stanford. And I mean, brilliant, brilliant minds saying we don't buy, we don't buy evolution. And so we said there's reason to doubt it. And the opposite side of that coin is that the supernatural is possible. Okay. Because if you believe in, crea- or in, in evolution, you probably don't believe that the supernatural is possible because the natural explains how you got here. But what we, we really looked at is, man, a ton of us in this place have experienced supernatural things. Like God showing up in real and amazing ways in our lives. And if you haven't had that, that's what you need. You need that for yourself. So that, that's the first week. The evidence points to God. And uh, we'd love for you to grab that whole message. Isn't I, I'm going to just kind of blow through these real quick. And if you disagree, I understand. Um, check out the message online. I spent 35 or 40 minutes on each one of these. The second week, we said that truth and power are found in Jesus alone. And when you line them up with all the other options, Jesus is the only one who, would, who publicly died and rose again and whose death and resurrection does something for somebody. In other words, he says, okay, it's not about what you do. It's not like Buddha who says, go get yourself enlightened, or Muhammad who says, live a good life. Jesus says, I took your sin on me. I came for you. And it's all about what I did for you. Then the third week we said that the, whole, the story of the whole Bible is sacrifice and substitution. In other words, from the first few chapters in Genesis, we began to hear that man screwed up and we need someone to take our place. We need someone to be a sacrifice for us. We need someone to fill in as a substitute and carry our sin for us. Then the fourth week, we said that the, uh, pro- the I'm sorry, prophecy is powerful evidence that Jesus died and rose again. And again, if you're, you're, you're getting little snapshots of these, check out the podcast online. But we talked about over 350 prophecies that were written up to a thousand years before Jesus came. Detailed stuff that nobody could have just, you know, kind of guessed at. Okay, and then the following week, which was last week, we kind of tied it all together saying, well, how do we know the prophecies were fulfilled? Because there were eyewitnesses there and those eyewitnesses gave their lives saying this stuff was true. And we didn't just have eyewitnesses, but we went out to eyewitnesses of eyewitnesses. And then we went a third generation out and we had an eyewitness of the eyewitnesses of the eyewitnesses. Right. These people who knew each other, who knew Jesus and many of them suffered and died saying that they believed that Jesus was alive and well, and they'd seen him with their own eyes. And so the evidence of the eyewitnesses is so, so powerful. Okay? Now tonight, here's where we're headed. I'll slow down a little bit now. Um, Tonight we are headed in in a direction that's linked to last week. Um, The best evidence that the eyewitnesses gave us their real account of what happened is that they allowed someone to crucify them upside down or burn them alive or stab them or whatever it was that was done to them. That's the best evidence that they were probably telling the truth about that, right? But tonight, we're actually going to look at over 20 reasons why we can trust the New Testament. Okay? And we're going to go through them quick. Don't worry. I'm not going to be here until, you know, it's going to be a normal message, normal amount of time. All right? But we're going to look at over 20 reasons why we can trust what the eyewitnesses said. 
And this is, this is why this is so important. When I was a kid, I had a lot, a lot of friends, because I'm so cool. And um, I had a lot of friends that uh, lo- would say, hey, I love God. I love God. You know, I had one really, really good friend of my best friends growing up said he wanted to be a pastor. And, and just like me, I wanted to be a pastor. And, and around the same time in our lives, we both started to doubt. And through this whole series, I've been saying I'm the biggest skeptic out there, okay? And so through the whole, uh, right around the same time in our lives, we began to doubt and we began to really question our faith. And we began to wonder about the things we've been taught as kids. And at the same time, um, he really kind of ran from it. And I, and I'm not saying this because I'm good. I'm not. It's just the way it happened. I questioned it. And I looked. And I struggled through it. And I fought through it. And I asked tough questions. And I looked for good answers. Okay? And today, if you asked him, he would say, well, I don't believe in God. And I would say, obviously, well, I'm in love with God. And I have an incredible relationship with God. Right? And so the reason this is so important, the reason these things we're talking about in this series is so important is because there are going to be times you're going to doubt. There are going to be times you're going to hear a great argument. There are going to be times when you are suffering and you don't feel like God's anywhere near you. And you're going to have to know that, man, you know what? You're sitting on a chair that can support your weight. And there's tons and tons of evidence and that you can hang in there and you can keep going. Okay? And as we talk about the eyewitnesses tonight, um, I want to talk about why we know we can believe what they say, because that's so important, right? Um, Just think about discussions you may have with somebody that's not a Christian, right? As soon as you bring up the Bible, what is their response? Their response is, oh, you can't bring the Bible up because of course it's going to say that, right? You try to say, oh, well, you know, Matthew said, or or John said, they say, oh, don't quote the Bible to me. Of course they're going to say Jesus rose from the dead. It's the Bible. What do you expect? But here's the problem with saying that, okay? They were the eyewitnesses. Okay, yeah, they say he rose again, but but they were the eyewitnesses. To discount them is to discount the people closest to the whole historical matter. Like, for example, just imagine um, something happening. You have to go to court, and you have an eyewitness that saw what happened, right? You got in an accident. Somebody was at the light. They saw the guy came, and he hit you, right? And so you bring the eyewitness into court and you say, all right, tell, him, ju- tell the judge what you saw. And the judge says, I'm not going to listen to you. You claim that you were there, right? That's what happens when people discount the Bible. You're having these discussions with people who are saying, I'm not going to listen to any of that. Of course they're going to say that. Yeah, but they were the ones that were there. They were the ones that gave their lives saying this stuff was true. Uh, a bunch of years back, our youth group, when it was just real little, we went on a hike, and uh, the guy who played guitar over here, Joey, uh, we got a nice picture I'll show you here. Um, he was dared to jump from one side of this river to another, okay? So there was like some land over here, and there's some land over here. Okay, I was there, and I can tell you that just his hand made land, okay? <laughs> Only his hand. Some of you were there, and you might remember this. My favorite part of this picture is the fact that his boot actually fell off mid-jump, okay? And so he landed in the water, and just an absolute mess. Now, some of you guys, though, as you're looking at that picture, go, okay, this is the year 2010. We've got sophisticated uh, equipment. Um, I'm thinking that's just a, a little piece of a river, and you guys Photoshop Joey and the shoe in there, right? Now, I can say, and some of you were there too, we, we could get up on the stage and say, yeah, but, but we were there. We saw it. But the same argument that's used against the Bible, you could use against us and say, oh, I'm not going to listen to you. You claim you were there, right? That's exactly what so many people are doing with scripture these days. And so we need to look at this and we need to find out, well, can we trust what the Bible says? Right? Um, Can we trust what these guys wrote? And so here's what we're going to do. Okay? We're going to end up looking at 22 reasons why the Bible is true. Okay? And I broke it up uh, into three main categories and then I kind of threw up 
I didn't, that's disgusting. Um, and I kind of threw uh, all different points kind of under each one. So I'll tell you when we're going through categories. So it's only going to say that there's 19 things up on the screen. But if you add the three categories, it brings us up to 22, right? So first category is this. And the next eight things we're going to talk about line up with this first category. There were many things that the writers of the Bible wouldn't have done if this was a hoax. Okay? If the eyewitnesses were making this up, if we couldn't trust them, okay, there's a ton of things that they wouldn't have, have done that they did do. Okay? First one is this. They wouldn't have made women the first eyewitnesses of Jesus' resurrection. Okay? No offense, ladies. Don't throw things. Okay? All right? They wouldn't have made women the first eyewitnesses of Jesus' resurrection. Now, why wouldn't they have done that? Because in that day and age, a woman's testimony wasn't even admissible in court. Okay? They, they wouldn't have even allowed her to give a testimony if she were there. So someone gets murdered, this woman happened to be there, and she saw the whole thing, the judge is going, I don't care, she's a woman, I'm not listening to her. Okay? So let's get this straight. The brilliant plan of the, of, of the guys like Peter and John and, and all these guys who are trying to get this pretend thing out there, the brilliant plan is to make women... The first eyewitnesses. Of course, they, they, they never would have done that. They would have said, oh, I was there. They would have made Peter or John or Paul. Well, Paul wasn't around yet, but Peter or John or Matthew or one of these other guys, one of the witnesses there, right? But instead they say, you know what? Here are the women. Man, they were the first ones. They actually came and got us. Okay, they would never have done that if they were trying to sell this thing and they knew it wasn't true. All right, this next one's going to look like a typo on the screen, but it's actually not. They wouldn't have said Mark and Luke what Luke? Wow, Luke wrote Mark and Luke. They never would have said, "Okay, the second two gospels were written by these guys, Mark and Luke." You know why they never would have said that? Because Mark and Luke weren't eyewitnesses, right? And if you guys have ever heard of the Gnostic Gospels, they were the gospels that were written much later by uh, people that were in the late second and early third century. Okay. Uh, by people that never could have been the ones that wrote it. Like, there's one called the Gospel of Thomas, right? And people try to say, oh, Thomas, you know, Thomas, Jesus' disciple wrote this. Well, that's funny because it's written in 175 AD. I think Thomas might have been uh, sleeping by then, all right? Um, Mary, Gospel of Mary. There's the Gospel of all these, all these different people, right? And so, and here's why that's so important, okay? Because even at the end of the second and, thir- and the beginning of the third century, people were still trying to pass off Gospels under these guys' names because they had big names, right? They were eyewitnesses. So they're trying to get people to believe that Thomas wrote one and Judas wrote one and Mary wrote one, right? But here, Mark and Luke, they're being written by people who aren't eyewitnesses. Mark was Peter's friend and Luke was Paul's friend. And they still named them Mark and Luke. So everyone in the first century is going, well, who the heck's Mark and Luke, right? Well, where's Peter and John? Where's, where's all these other guys, right? Where's Matthew? Oh, no, no, Mark... Uh, was Peter's friend and, and Luke was Paul's friend and they told them the story. See, if they were making this thing up and trying to get it out there, they probably would have named Mark, Peter, and Luke, Paul, right? But because this was just history, this is just truth, it's the way it happened. When Luke wrote his, his gospel, he was not sitting down going, I'm going to write a gospel right now. He sat down, he wrote a letter to a guy named Theophilus and that letter became gospel because of its incredible message about Jesus, Okay, so this was not some plan. I know Da Vinci Code, you know, they got their whole plan and Peter and this and that. And they're trying to get power and look famous and all this stuff. Um, They never would have done these things. Okay, number three, they wouldn't have crucified their main character. The main character of their story, they put on a cross. You know why they would never have done that? Because anyone crucified in the first century would have instantly instantly been labeled as absolute dog. Worthless. 
if their plan was to try to tell the story about a guy who was put on a cross, as soon as you said the word cross, everybody would have discounted you. It would have been like, oh, oh, that guy? Oh, he came back to the, from the dead. Did he really? Oh, that's funny because you said he was executed on a cross and only the worst criminals are executed on crosses. So that would have been a really, really stupid thing for them to try to sell to everybody because nobody would have listened to them after they said the word cross if he hadn't actually risen back from the dead. Number four, they wouldn't... Uh, oh, I just did before. Sorry. No, no, that's four. They wouldn't have tried to convince people of a resurrection. Okay? They wouldn't have tried to convince people that Jesus rose from the dead because the Jews didn't even believe in personal resurrections. Number five, they wouldn't have painted themselves in such a bad light. Does anybody remember that Jesus called Peter Satan? <laughs> anybody with that, right? If Peter is telling Mark the story about what happened and Mark's writing it down, okay, don't you think, don't you think Peter's saying to Mark, all right, buddy, uh, pal, there's a story I need you to leave out. Okay, there's this one time when Jesus looked at me and said I was Satan. Can you, can you leave that one out? Can you, can you exclude that one from the record? But instead, if you read Mark, you'll find that story in there. You'll see when Jesus looks at Peter and goes, get behind me, Satan, right? If, if that were true, I mean, and how many other times do you hear things that they did? Like Thomas, doubting. Peter, be just being an idiot, like over and over again, right? I mean, just where, even, even, you know, them including the fact that they, in, in the first century times, I mean, fishermen, tax collectors, these were people that were low class, not liked, especially tax collectors, collectors hated. And so if Matthew and Peter and all these guys are trying to get this, this thing out there about themselves so that they can build fame and wealth for themselves, they never would have included all these things that make them look so bad. Number six, they wouldn't have their main character showing human weakness. All right here's Jesus uh, in the garden of Gethsemane before he's about to go on the cross and he's sweating drops of blood. And he's crying out, if there's any other way, can you, can you make something else happen here, God? The next one, they wouldn't have had their main character crying out that God had abandoned him. Right from the cross, Jesus says, why have you forsaken me? Why have you abandoned me? Why did you do this to me? Right? They wouldn't have done that. I mean, they're, they're trying to sell this big story, right? There's no way they would have done this. For those of you guys that are taking notes and I'm going too fast, uh, I'm happy to email you this stuff later in the week if you want. Number eight. <laughs> Everyone's like, oh, thank God. Okay. Um, number eight. Matt's got a hand cramp over there. Um, number eight. This is really interesting. They wouldn't have written fiction like that. Uh, C.S. Lewis, who knows a thing or two about writing and literature, um, he said something really, really cool about, about the New Testament. He said that basically back in the day when people wrote fiction, it was very broad. It didn't have all the fine details. Okay? It didn't have all the little intricacies that fiction like we have today has. You know, like today you're reading some novel, you know, and it's like, and the lady had the knife and there was a candlestick. And that was creepy. I don't know what that was. But, uh, you know, and so the, the whole thing. But, but they, they wouldn't have done it that way. There wouldn't have been all the details. Okay? The only way there were details was if it was history. And C.S. Lewis literally says that if those guys wrote that as fiction, they actually were ahead of their time by hundreds of years. Like when you read other fiction from that era, it's not like that at all. And so even in a literary sense, it's totally, totally different. Okay? All right, next kind of category we've got here. So we, we just talked about how there are tons of things they wouldn't have done if it was a hoax. Now, it was recorded too soon to be a hoax. It was, it was, it was recorded too soon to be a lie. Um, number nine, New Testament scholars date the Gospels at the following dates. Matthew, 65 to 85 A.D., 
Mark 60 to 75 AD, Luke 65 to 95 AD, and John 75 to 100 AD. Now, the reason I left kind of those really far out there dates is because like I've been saying through this series that we want to stay skeptics here. We want to keep looking through skeptic eyes and really asking questions fairly. And so I'm not just going to get up and say, oh yeah, Matthew's written in 65 and Mark is written in 60. I want to say, all right, well, let's leave room for like some of the more liberal historians and when they say these things were written, okay? And so let's say that they were written even at the latest date. Let's say it's 85, 75, 95, and 100, okay? Um, Still, you have eyewitnesses alive, right? If this happened on Long Island 60, 65 years ago, like I can ask my grandma, wait, you were around when this happened? Right? I, I mean, there's people, there's tons of people. You probably all know people over the age of 65. You saw Jesus, or you know somebody who saw Jesus, or you visited the empty tomb, or you, know, you saw his followers, Peter or John, give their lives. I mean, there are so many people around within that time period that you could still verify things with. And so these things are written early. I was talking with a kid a few weeks back. I spoke at a school, and I was talking about some of this stuff. And he says, didn't, didn't like none of the gospel writers even know Jesus? You know, and, and, and it's so funny how, man, you know, these dates have just been pushed back and pushed back. But man, these guys were there. They saw it. They wrote it. And at the very latest, you still have tons of eyewitnesses you could have spoken with. All right. Ten. The first accounts of Jesus' resurrection were written 15 to 20 years after the resurrection by Paul. So let's say all the gospel writers were out, you know, somewhere around between 75 and 100 A.D. You still have Paul right, who wasn't an eyewitness, but who interviewed the eyewitnesses, was buddies with all the eyewitnesses, died alongside the eyewitnesses, beheaded alongside the eyewitnesses, okay? He only wrote 15 to 20 years after this all took place, okay? I was, if this happened on Long Island 20 years ago, dude, I'm 12, right? I'm alive, right? A lot of you guys are alive. Obviously, your parents are alive, um, your grandparents are alive. Some of you have older siblings that are alive. Some of you have aunts and uncles who would have been alive. I mean, you're not just going to lay down your life for something that you haven't verified. Isn't that true? You're not just going to be willing to be kicked out of cities, which is what happened to Christians, or thrown into a coliseum and torn apart by lions, naming yourself as a Christian, unless you have verified this stuff. And so these writings are way too early to have been a hoax, especially when you line them up with history like we did last week. And said, man, people will be torn, torn apart in the Colosseum as early as 64 AD for being a Christian. Just because they said they love Jesus. Okay? So it's much too early for this to have been a lie. All right. Let's look at some other proof here. Um, number 11. We have a piece of John's manuscript dated to 125 AD. Okay? So that shows you that John's manuscript was written and other people, like the original uh, manuscript was written and, and people are now copying, okay, as early as 125 A.D., okay? So you're like early 2nd century here. All right, number 12. Papias wrote in 130 A.D. that Mark and Matthew had written their Gospels. Okay, so you're, again, you're just a little bit out. I mean, again, there, there are tons of people you can still verify this with, right? Uh, 175 A.D., Tatian writes the Diatessaron, four Gospels harmonized into one work. So he took Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and he made one big book out of them all. Okay, so they're obviously they exist, right? 14. In, in 180 AD, Irenaeus names Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John as gospel writers. Okay? Irenaeus, if you remember last week, right? He was the disciple of Polycarp, and Polycarp was the disciple of John. What happened to John? 
They sent him to an island. They put him in a boiling vat of oil. What happened to Polycarp? They burned him alive. Irenaeus was Polycarp's disciple. Polycarp was John's disciple. I'm thinking Irenaeus got that right. Okay? And I'll say this here too, that if you hear about the Gospel of Thomas and the Gospel of Mary and Judas and all these things, right? Irenaeus, who lived at the time these things would have been written, wrote extensively how they were written later in the 2nd and 3rd centuries and how they were not the true Gospels. Okay? So you have that history. There's just history, guys. We're doing history here tonight. All right? All right, the third kind of big group. So we've talked about what they wouldn't have done if this was a hoax. We've talked about how it was recorded too early to be a hoax. And now we're going to talk about how it was recorded too accurately to be a hoax. Fifteen, the first century was all about oral tradition. What that means is, this guy Mark Roberts puts it really well. He wrote a book called Can We Trust the Gospels? An awesome, awesome book. And he puts it this way. You know the game of telephone, right? The first guy says something to the second guy. The second guy says something to the third. And by the time you get to the end, it's totally different, right? Okay, what he says is that basically what would have happened in the first century is the way that they kept stories alive was by telling them out loud. So he says it's like t- playing telephone out loud. Not much fun, right? You get to point out all the mistakes, right? Um, I run a small group at the green room. Uh, I have the sixth and seventh grade boys, a bunch of maniacs. And uh, we this past week did, uh, I played telephone with them. And I, 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 I am going to be editing here a good bit, some things I couldn't repeat. But uh, here, here's what we got. It started out. The first one was Big Bang Mama Llama, and it ended up Exit Signs Are Cool. Okay? Second one, sixth grade, right? I am awesome. I've got llamas. Okay. The cow says moo. The mouse is pow. This is my personal favorite. The alphabet song is for losers. The owl's mouth is for bluesers. Okay? <laughs> so they're just going freestyle. You know what I'm saying? Nothing wrong. Put a beat behind that, you make a million dollars. All right. Um, Skippy the pig is a rhinoceros. Someone's plane is a skippy. Okay? So you see how things get twisted. And this, right, is so often what's said about Christianity and about, about this New Testament. Ah, oh, it wasn't written until 65, 75, 80 AD. I mean, think about all the mistakes they must have made. Think about how, you know, they, they must have carried these messages down. But, dude, the way that they did this was oral tradition. It was telling the story and retelling the story. And you know what? If I'm telling the story to Steve and I get it wrong, Casey's pointing it out, going, Doug, you totally screwed that up. Get it right. I'm mean, going to call you out on the spot. Okay? And rabbis were actually known for having memorized whole books of the Bible. So it's not uncommon. This is not like you and I. Like, uh, what did I eat for breakfast this morning? I mean, like, these guys are just brilliant. They have this, this, this whole memorization technique down, and they're just going for it. And so this is not some unbelievable, uncommon thing that to go pass it on orally, out loud, said all the time, um, would have been some weird thing for them to do, okay? 16 is the unbelievable amount of manuscript copies of the New Testament, okay? What that means is, you have the original copies of the New Testament. So John wrote John. Matthew wrote Matthew. Mark wrote, right? Now, people then took those and copied them so we could have them, right? So they could get out there, all right? Now, what's incredible is how many of them we have, okay? Um, I'm going to tell you the number and you'll be unimpressed until I compare it to something else, okay? But we have 25,000 manuscript copies of parts of the New Testament, okay? So you're like, so I don't care, all right? Um, well, when you talk about ancient literature, the one that comes closest to it, like the one next that has the most copies, is Homer's Iliad, and there's 643 copies. So you're talking about a difference between 24,000 plus copies that we have of the New Testament. I think they want to make sure they got it right. 
right? I, I think they were really going for it. I, I think they were trying to make sure that they got this message out and that this message was kept so that you and I today have it. Next one's amazing. 17, the church fathers of the first, second, and third centuries quoted the New Testament over 36,000 times, okay? So this guy's like Irenaeus, who we've talked about. It's a guy like Clement. It's a guy like Justin Martyr. These early church fathers, first, second, and third century, and they would write letters, just like, you know, we have Philippians. Well, they'd write a letter to the guys of Philippi and say, hey, here's what Jesus, you know, and talking about whatever, you know, like all this stuff out to the Romans and out to, right? Wrote letters, right? That aren't in the Bible. They're written too late to be in our Bible. That's why, okay? And as they were written, they quoted the New Testament 36,000 times, okay? And somebody asked this guy a great question. Someone asked, you guys can read along, Sir David Dalrymple, if the New Testament had been destroyed and every copy of it lost by the end of the third century, kind of like the Da Vinci Code would have you believe, could it have been collected together again from the writings of the fathers of the second and third centuries? After a great deal of investigation, Dalrymple concluded, that question roused my curiosity, and as I possessed all the existing works of the fathers of the second and third centuries, I commenced to search, and up to this time, I found the entire New Testament except 11 verses. So what that means is, guys like Irenaeus, guys like Clement, right? As they're writing these letters, they wrote so much scripture to these churches that you can put the New Testament back together, even if you didn't have a New Testament anymore, except for 11 verses. And again, this was not their goal. It's not like me in the front row getting together and saying, all right, let's get this message out and so that's, that we can make sure we quote these guys 36,000 times. And No, these, these guys were just writing letters to people that they cared for. And they wrote so much that the entire New Testament could be put back together. So it's not this like Da Vinci Code thing where like, oh yeah, in the third century, this all got put together. No, man, they've been quoting what had been written from the beginning. Okay, um, next one is this, the Bible's historical reliability. And we're getting close to the end here, so hang in, all right? The Bible's historical reliability. Does, is what I'm about to say going to prove that Jesus died and rose from the dead? No. But this is what it will prove, that the Bible was not put together by a bunch of pranksters. Like if me and Joe and Andrew and Ryan want to play a trick on everybody and we want to put something together... I would not be taking painstaking effort to make sure I got all the right historical figures in all the right places at all the right times. You know what I mean? Like if this were some thing we came up with to try to start some cult and get people to follow us, like we just probably put stuff out there and whatever. I'm not so worried about lining all this up. But as you're going to see here, Luke takes painstaking efforts to make sure that if he talks about a ruler, that he's got him in the right place at the right time. If he talks about a place, he's got it in the right area. Okay? And so we're going to look at Luke verse one, or chapter 1 and the first four verses. This is how Luke starts his letter. This is what he says. Many have attempted to write about what had taken place among us. They received their information from those who had been eyewitnesses and servants of God's word from the beginning, and they passed it on to us. I, too, have followed everything closely from the beginning. So I thought it would be a good idea to write an orderly account for your excellency, Theophilus. In this way, you will know what you've been told is true. So historically, Luke's going, I just looked into it. I wasn't there, but I interviewed the eyewitnesses. And I made sure I got this right. Because, man, people are talking, but I want to make sure, Theophilus, that when I wrote this letter to you, you got the facts. And what did he go on to write this letter? He went on to say that Jesus had come, that he was born as a human, that he had put himself, or had allowed them to put him up on a cross, and that he'd risen back from the dead. Okay? 
Now, this guy, Sir William Ramsey, he was a famous historian archaeologist, said this, Luke is a historian of the first rank. Not merely are his statements of fact trustworthy. The author should be placed with the very greatest of historians. Luke's history is unsurpassed in respect of its trustworthiness. Okay? Did I just prove Jesus rose back from the dead? No. But man, we can see here that what these guys are doing is not just throwing some story together, but they are recording actual history. Now, in a few weeks, we're going to look a lot at the history written by secular guys and how it lines up, lines up with Christianity and what the Bible has to say. People who hated Jesus, just recording history, guys like Josephus and Tacitus, what they say, how it lines up with what the Bible says. It's incredible. So that's two weeks out. So I'm not going to spend a ton of time on history. I want to look at the next one, which is archaeology confirms the Bible. Okay? Archaeologist Nelson Gluick says this, It may be stated categorically that no archaeological discovery has ever controverted a single biblical reference. Scores of archaeological findings have been made which confirm in clear outline or in exact detail historical statements of the Bible. So you're saying, all right, in all of archaeology, we've never found one thing that makes us think the Bible is not right, is not true. And the opposite of that is true. More and more we discover stuff, the more and more we find that what the Bible accounts for historically is true. I'll just throw in here real quick, if you're wondering if all religions have that. For example, Mormons don't have one archaeological find to back up what they claim happened historically. Not one. Okay? Whereas in Christianity, you have tons and tons. I'm going to give you one example, and uh, we're getting ready to close here. In 1961, an Italian archaeologist discovered an inscription on a stone slab which said this, Tiberium, Pontius Pilate, Prefect of Judea. And you're going, so what? I don't really care. Like, it's going to get me points in jeopardy someday. Okay, but aside from that, right? Who cares, right? Well, this shows that Pontius Pilate was a real person who ruled in Judea during the time of Tiberius. And again, you're going, so what? Don't care. Let's look at Luke 3, verse 1. It says this, It was the 15th year in the reign of Emperor Tiberius. Pontius Pilate was the governor of Judea. And that word governor uh, is interchangeable with prefect. Okay? And so you have just... 60 years ago, or 50 years ago, this slab discovered that absolutely dates this correctly. And for a long time, actually, people thought Luke was wrong. They thought somebody else was ruling. When Luke said it was uh, Tiberius and, and Pilate, they thought that they never ruled at the same time. And this slab actually proved that Luke had it right. And so archaeology, again, doesn't prove the resurrection, but it confirms that these guys weren't messing around, that they were recording actual history. And so tonight, I hope you guys will just take this simple thought with you that we can trust what the Bible says about Jesus. We can trust it. That over and over again, there are things they never would have done if this was all some big joke. That it was recorded way too soon to be a hoax. And that it was recorded way too accurately to be wrong. As you line all that up, you begin to see that, man, that that Bible, man, you can trust it. You can read it and know that it's right, that it's correct, that it's true. And again, like I said earlier, if this was the only thing I had, if this was my one message to you about the evidence that was there, then maybe you'd have good reason to doubt. But as you throw in the eyewitnesses giving their lives, you throw in the prophecies that came saying Jesus would do those things. You have this whole idea throughout Scripture that we need a sacrifice. You have Jesus lined up with all these religious figures. He's the only one that did it publicly and says, my death saves you. I'm the only one that came for you. That's his message for you. And that the evidence points toward God. 
I hope you're starting to see more and more that there is ton, tons of reasons. There are tons of reasons to believe that this is true. And we've got four more weeks to go. We're going to keep looking, keep digging. But I hope tonight you'll just leave with this thought. That what the Bible says about Jesus is true. Let's pray. Father, we just are grateful to you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for preserving it. Thank you for keeping it. Thank you that we still have it today to be able to look at and study and know and enjoy. And God, I just pray for everybody here in this place tonight that you would increase our faith. And that you would let us experience you in awesome, awesome ways, God. We're just so thankful for all the evidence that you've left. And we want to just keep discovering it more and more. If you're not a Christian, I give you the same invitation I've been given each week. The first one is, is to come back next week. and Check it out again. It couldn't hurt. If this has the potential of being true, then what could it hurt to come back another week and continue to look and, and search? If you're not a Christian and, and you're tonight, maybe you're willing to take a step further than that. Maybe... Tonight you would be willing to just say, God, if you're there, would you show yourself to me? Would you show me that you love me? Would you show me how real this all is? And the third invitation would be to actually pray and ask Jesus to be your Savior. Maybe you're convinced. Maybe you've been here these last weeks and you're like, man, I didn't have any clue there was all this evidence. And so tonight might be the night you would begin a relationship with him and begin to learn what it means to fall in love with the God who came to rescue you. And so you can just pray this quietly, something like this. Jesus, thank you for dying for me. Thank you for rising again. I pray that you will show me how real all this is and that you will teach me and show me what it is to love you and trust you with my life. Amen. If any of you guys have any questions, I'd love to talk with you, I'd love to pray with you guys. Um, I'd love to point you in the direction of some great books, Evidence That Demands a Verdict by Josh McDowell. Mark Roberts, Can We Trust the Gospels? Tim Keller, The Reason for God. Uh, the Case for Christ and the Case for a Creator are out in the lobby. We'll just give those to you if you're searching. But keep looking. Keep searching. Don't give up. Don't give up hope. There are answers. And tonight, just, just rejoice. Let's enjoy tonight the fact that we can trust that, that testimony those eyewitnesses gave us about Jesus.